0: Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now, your host Les Jensen. So I guess, what is? I guess to start off with a question: Is there a is there a problem? is there a condition, is there a circumstance we can take on in our life that is insurmountable? Well, okay, I mean, so a gigantic boulder lands on your head and crushes you into the ground. All right, game over for this lifetime. I get that. But outside of that, I mean, we've had some really powerful interviews about people that have come up against extremely difficult conditions. RJ Spina was on the show and he was paralyzed from the neck down and Western medicine said, well, we're out of options. You're gonna have to learn how to live this way. And he said, ma'am, you know what? I'm gonna walk on my own accord in a hundred days, and he did that. I mean, he overcame something being paralyzed from the neck down and many, many operations and Western medicine had given up on him. And he, well, his shows in the archives, you can go find it if you want. But what I'm getting at here is really you, the show is always about you, the listener and i know for myself as i we're based here in denver colorado and as i go throughout my day i see um i see people that seem pretty much numb pretty much checked out there's not a spark in their eye there's not a spring in their step they're um it's like they've given up or something like that and i get it you know earth earth is a pretty tough uh, place to incarnate into uh, well i i should say it it can have tough lessons but ultimately it's up to you maybe i guess maybe i'm talking to your soul all all the listeners i'm talking to your soul your soul knows this i suppose at some point but there's not really anything that's insurmountable when we put our mind to it i think we should uh, i think we should get to it we're going to have a, a a powerful episode tonight i'm looking forward to it the topic tonight is wise little one, and our guest tonight is Jana Wilson. We're going to bring her on in just a bit, but I I want you to think about what's your biggest obstacle in your life right now if you were to sit down and, and... and make a list of what your biggest challenges are what would they be and and maybe how long how long have you had these as obstacles i'm not here to decide what's what's tough and what's not tough i'm not here to decide what's uh, I don't want to put any judgment whatsoever on what your answers are and what your struggles are and what your condition is, how long you've been been in the game, so to speak. That's not my call. It's not my call. But as if you've listened to the show at all, you know that um, we're here to stir things up and, and to give you the audience, you the listener, more tools for your toolbox more empowerment for your sense of self we have a very powerful story tonight and there's no time like the present i think we should get to it again the topic tonight is wise little one and our guest is uh Jenna wilson white's little one is the topic of her latest book the subtitle is learning to love and listen to my inner child a victim of childhood abuse and trauma jana could have wound up another statistic yet at the age of 12 she had a mystical experience that catapulted her on her lifelong journey of learning to listen and love herself. In her breakout prescription memoir, Wise Little, Wise Little One, we follow as she develops a connection to her inner child. Through this connection, she cultivates an unshakable faith in self and spirit taking full responsibility for her soul's journey. She says, What I have come to know in my personal life and the lives of all the people I've worked with is that every trauma, challenge, and wound comes bearing a gift and some wisdom our soul needs. Once I opened up to finding the wisdom and lesson of my very traumatic childhood that made me the strong loving compassionate and capable woman wife and mother that i am today i began to live a life of my dreams you can learn more about her at emotional dot com join me in welcoming Gina to the show welcome to the show
1: Hi, Les. Thank you for having me.
0: You've got a really powerful story. And um, in the prologue of the book, you share a a very profound experience. And I think it really puts things in context. So can we start off with um, what, what, you share in that prologue so the audience can understand um, what your journey has been about?
1: Yeah. So thank you for asking. I, um, at 12 years old, I had endured a lot of trauma up to that point and it was, a evening like many evenings in my home when my father would come home after drinking a day of drinking if my mother did anything wrong the food was cold anything it would cause an eruption and he was a very violent drunk alcoholic and so my brother who was two and a half years older was kind of my protector you know he took the brunt of my father's rage he was always there to say you know hey everything's going to be okay and hold me as I cried and You know was scared and he was gone he was 15 at that point i was 12 and he wasn't home and so again a fight erupts you know my dad starts beating my mother and it was pretty unmerciful you know guns would get pulled sometimes police would be called emergency room visits i mean it was intense and i ran outside and i began to pray i lived in central florida and i had a very Strong connection to spirit, and I always say that was the gift of the trauma is because it pushed me to yearn for that connection and because I grew up in the Bible belt, church was a big part of of my daily life and but what began to happen that night was something different than I had learned in church, and so I'm praying you know to Jesus to save me, and all of a sudden I'm pulled out of my body I had a an experience that's similar to a near death experience when a child's put in that kind of traumatic environment, you know, it's, it's close to death to them. They're not sure they're going to live. And so I'm praying to be saved from this situation. And all of a sudden I feel this peace that passes all understanding. And I, in my little mind, I think, am I dead? And then I hear not an audible voice, but this voice says, Those are not your parents. I am. That is not your life. This is. And as soon as I heard that, I kind of opened my eyes and I look around. And it's almost like I was like could reach star nebulas and galaxies. I mean, I was one with what we call the cosmos. And and I could still see my little body there. I could still hear the raging, the voices, the screaming. Yet I wasn't there. I was observing it from above and I felt so peaceful. I remember thinking, if I'm dead, I'm good. And I don't want to go back. And then as soon as I had that thought, I was back in my body. And, but everything felt different and it was different. I, you know, I felt like a a deep awakening of a knowingness that I was going to be okay. And that I was here for a purpose and that what my parents were displaying, conditioning me with all this anger and the addiction and all of that, was not the real reality. That they didn't really have the answers, and I needed to trust that voice inside of me. And I call that my wise little one, my my you know spark of divine, that connection to God and to the Holy Spirit. And from that day on, I gave up religion, pretty much because um, I began to see things in a much broader perspective and cultivate a relationship with God within myself based on what happened.
0: Wow. So as a a young child, 12 years old, and and you have this experience, was it like immediately – Um, there was an unshakable peace, like even that evening? Yeah,
1: it was very immediate. As soon as I was pulled from my body, I felt lightness. I felt whole. I felt peaceful. I felt like I knew that I was kind of this, I had this knowingness. I didn't have words for it at 12 years old. But looking back, I had a knowingness that I wasn't this role I was playing. As a daughter of these two people, living in poverty in a trailer, being labeled by society as trailer trash, being on welfare, food stamps, you know, living um, in this way wasn't my birthright. Like, I I had a knowingness that woke up in me that I that there was something special within me.
0: We had been talking before the show started, and you mentioned... Uh uh reincarnation do you think uh your soul was aware um before you were born that at the age of 12 you would have this experience
1: well i certainly you know believe that essentially that's what we are a soul you know to hildar de chardin the jesuit catholic priest said you know we're spiritual beings having a human experience and to answer your question Yes, I believe the soul contracts. I believe my soul contracted with my mom and dad um, for lessons, for greater healing, for me to go through the experience I went through at such a young age so that I could wake up because let's face it if it doesn't challenge you it doesn't change you and I had quite a bit of challenges (laughs) and you know so I was constantly you know being challenged in the environment to look at these adults I didn't have respect for them I certainly you know even before that 12 year old event when I was a baby I was under the age of two was still in diapers we lived in Atlanta and I had this desire to drown. I didn't want to live. I was already aware of the fighting and the chaos. And and then it, when you look at trauma in a family list, it comes in intergenerationally. So of course, I was taking on intergenerational trauma from my mom and dad. My mother lost her father. My dad's father was an alcoholic, immigrated from Ireland. His mother was Native American. They were very emotionless. Uh, so they were coming in with all their stuff. While my mom was pregnant with me, that was precognitive or preconscious trauma because researchers believe that children under the age of two don't remember. But I was in the womb. My mom being beaten. No one questions if a, if a mother's drinking alcohol or taking drugs, that it affects the baby. But there's not a lot of talk about a mother who's being beaten or clinically depressed and, the, and pregnant with a child. What is that doing? That's feeding the child with a steady diet of cortisol and adrenaline and noradrenaline. And, you know, so when I became a hypnotherapist, I discovered I wrapped the cord around my neck and flipped myself. And oh. did I do, do I know that's the truth? No, I was definitely breached with the cord wrapped. I did have that knowledge, but during my hypnotherapy training, I saw that. I saw I did it. And so if we go to the question, you know, the soul, well, my soul contracted to come in, but I think my human was like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. This is too much. (laughs) Let me out of here.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, so um, if a listener is listening to this episode, and perhaps they have not yet had an awakening or an awareness, and they're entrenched in in heartache and struggle and perhaps domestic violence and whatnot i mean how do you how do you wrap your noggin around it now i i know at the age of 12 you had the insight and you've been working with this stuff but just imagine a listener that's that's got a really tough life going on and they can't connect the dots i mean how? What would you say to them as far as what we, we've been talking about? How how the soul can actually choose a dynamic? And I I love what you just said earlier. Like the human part of you is like, oh hell no, <laughs> right? What would you say for our audience?
1: Well, I mean, I've been you know in the healing field and working for twenty years with people that come and certainly they hear my story and maybe it compares maybe it's worse you know i haven't worked with too many people that i would say can trump my story in terms of trauma and abuse and adverse childhood experiences i score 10 out of 10 for the listeners the adverse childhood experience is called the ace test and it's just 10 questions and it it gives a clinician the ability to see what type of trauma you went through because of course research shows more trauma you went through the more you're probably going to perpetuate that and, and become you know offender yourself or you know just repeat the patterns of the family now everybody hears this term old soul right you always hear it oh they're an old soul oh that little kid is an old soul I can tell but you never hear about infant souls, baby souls, young souls or mature souls. So in my belief, from what I understand, I certainly don't expect the listeners to adopt my belief, but for me this gave me freedom. And when I began to adopt this mindset, what I'm about to share, I began to observe that I was liberated from, you know, from believing, you know, that I I had a life sentence and I was going to repeat the same things. So I I realized one thing, that there was one common denominator, and it was me. So I stepped out of victimhood. And in order to step out of victimhood, I had to view my circumstances, my childhood, through the lens of I made the choice. Now, I don't know that that's the truth. I don't know if reincarnation is real. None of us do. We don't know what happens after we die. But here's what I I knew that when I took on that belief I had a sense of freedom and responsibility and actually empowerment because less when I looked at my childhood through the lens of if I did choose it I must be a pretty strong soul to have chosen that but I right. need to get busy about learning the lessons. so for anyone who's listen who is listening and who maybe you know is not even open to reincarnation it doesn't matter all you have to do is ask yourself did your creator you know give you this experience to grow and learn and to become more loving and compassionate and caring i think so and so if you can look at your experiences and begin to ask the question instead of being victimized by it why is this happening to me and start to reframe it so this is happening for me because i want to grow and evolve and be better and so that's a big shift but if you go back to the soul ages i just want to recap on that because i didn't go into it when i was little left i was very aware you remember mutual of omaha would have sunday night um animal kingdom right remember that And I would watch that, and they would go to, you know, these remote tribes, and I would see people eating dirt patties, and, and I would think to myself, oh, my goodness, I thought I was, you know, just trash. But at least I'm in America, and I have good food to eat tonight, and, you know, it might be crazy in my home. I was able to begin to put my life into perspective by what I saw in the world. And we didn't have social media or any of that back then, right? I was just a child trying to make sense of why did I get handed this kind of really, you know, bad card, right? Like, why why did this happen? And then I began to see, well, I didn't get handed such a bad card because I have a grandmother who loves me and my mom certainly loved me. She was mentally ill, so it was very difficult for her. It was inconsistent. But I had love I experienced a lot of love in my childhood even in the midst of all the chaos so I had later on in my life I learned that infant souls these are souls that haven't quite got their lessons and they're still kind of an infant soul they're in survival infants are in survival they can't take care of themselves And so the reason why I wasn't born in the Congo having my vulva cut out or eating meat patty and, I mean, dirt patty and, you know, dying at life expectancy in my mid-30s is because I'm not an infant soul. And then you look at people, you know, young souls, baby souls. Baby souls are very religious. You know, they seek to make others like themselves. You know, young souls are very greedy. They're consumers. They just want to look young and consume. Mature souls are relationship oriented, and old souls are visionaries they want they're here to make a difference. so I certainly resonated that I was an old soul and i to answer your question, I think that awakening happened because, yes, maybe my soul contracted for that to say, "Hey, if it gets too bad, do something to wake her up to remind her she's right. here for a purpose, right, right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, now, and that might
1: be esoteric or, you know, out there for people, but for me, it really helped me, um, helped me heal.
0: Right. Well, now, writing any book is an inspiring achievement. I I know when I wrote my first book, it was kind of like giving birth to a Buick. I mean, it was, <laughs> it, it, it dragged me through the weeds, um, but writing one, like, your book and sharing the details of your traumatic childhood that that's that's pretty courageous to put yourself out there can you share with us about your experiences in bringing your story to life in wise little one
1: sure I mean it was difficult there were times that it was difficult but it was a deep driving desire it was so deep in me that I knew I could not rest until that book was finished like it was it's been in me for 25 years and I'd been writing stories but I wasn't ready right I you know healing is a process there's no destination and I had shared these stories with my clients and group events and you know memory without emotional charge is wisdom I began to observe that I could share the stories and I didn't get emotional so I could pull these memories and they didn't have an emotional charge anymore which said to me and the emotional charge was different, you know, like I can remember I work with clients, they'll start shaking, their bodies start shaking if they've had sexual abuse or physical abuse or, you know, memories come up because cells hold memory, cellular memory. And so in somatic practices, soma is the Greek word for body, we, the body keeps score. We hold these things in our body. And so I began to observe, you know, the older I got, I'm 58, and I would share these stories. I no longer had those experiences anymore. I fully came to a place where I could put on paper and share all of this in detail, like a novel, because a memoir is written like fiction, where you're drawing in the the nuances, the smells, the environment, the descriptions. And I think I did that well in the book. That was a little difficult because when you're sharing a story, it would be exhausting to sit to somebody and speak to them. And the room was cold, and I smelled my father's breath when he, you know, <laughs> of course right, right. sharing <laughs> the stories this way, right? so. When I started to share the stories that way, it became very um, real and, but, but powerful and empowering. And sometimes I would break out in tears and I would take, give myself a week maybe to just sit with something. You know, I had to be gentle, very gentle with myself. My inner child, which is our feeling self, which I call my wise little one, she would let me know. And the way she would let me know is she would start to get stubborn or resistant or shut down. I couldn't access memory. So I'd have to take my time. It took um, nine months to talk about giving birth. It took nine months to write the book. <laughs> and, um, you know, it took a little longer to publish it because, you know, publicists like to give, have time to get people reviewing it and reading it. And I got some reviews that were upsetting and I looked at them and as really good feedback and i went back to the drawing table and i kept perfecting the book to give the reader some help because it isn't non it isn't a self-help book right but it's a prescriptive memoir which means me because i've developed this emotional healing system people are going to read the book and go okay well this woman's healed from her trauma what is she can now can she help me so, I added that stuff in, and but I had to be gentle. Where it was hard less was when I went in to read it for audible. When I went into the right. studio, In August, that's when I broke down because now I'm reading a story, not just from my perspective, but I have to be my mother when she's speaking in the story. I have to be my father screaming at her and beating her. I have to be my brother. You know, I have to be every part of the book. And it was too much. I couldn't do it. So now I'm in talks with a um, actor, a voice actor to do the book for me because I can't read it, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah.
0: Well, you mentioned your emotional healing system. What are the core concepts behind that?
1: Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, so the emotional healing system, I kept, you know, on my journey of healing and working, I would find a teacher and a teaching that would just radically change my life, like go back to the 90s. Remember John Bradshaw? He would be on PBS all the time. He wrote The Shame That Binds You, right? PhD from Houston, brilliant man. So he introduced me to inner child work in my 20s. So I, you know, there there was the the reparenting and the inner child and that was really healing for me. And then I found Debbie Ford and I, you know, learned all about the shadow part of the psyche and psychosynthesis and what's called parts now or family system therapy, um, internal family systems. You know, and then I went to Deepak Chopra and I became a meditator and I started to learn a lot of the spiritual stuff. And I thought all of this needs to come together. So someone like myself, you know, if I could have went somewhere and they could have taught me every piece of all these pieces of these healing modalities in one place, I would have loved that. But it took me, you know. 20 years of going to all these teachers then getting certifications and trainings. And until finally in 2004, I launched my business and it of course evolved and grow, grew. And in 2010 we rebranded it to the emotional healing system because you know, people look for a system and so they learn this and it's very specific tools to help you self heal so that you don't need a therapist. You don't need to go to talk therapy. You take somebody, you know, that's pretty healthy, and they just don't know how to manage their emotions. They don't have any emotional intelligence, and you teach them these practical tools, and it can radically change their lives. I see people, you know, leave unrecognizable to themselves.
0: Nice. Well, now, um, you mentioned uh, meditation. How does... How does meditation impact us, like, physically, emotionally, spiritually? I mean, how is that as a tool across those platforms?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing research shows is that when we take time for stillness and silence, that, you know, it takes us into the parasympathetic part of our autonomic nervous system. Most of us live in the sympathetic part of the nervous system, and that's the gas pedal. That's, we live in a high-paced environment. We get emails. We see social media. We're exposed to trauma that we've never been exposed to before. We're seeing images and onslaught of all of this through social media that keeps us in stress response. And so meditation counterbalances the stress response, the flight, flight, freeze, fawn response. And when we're in stress response, listen, thought alone less can create stress. We could just have a thought, and it's not even a true thought. And the body responds as if we're about to get mauled by a bear. Right. So meditation helps us go in and counterbalance that stress response. So number one, that's the health benefit, that if you create a consistent daily practice of sitting, and and here's the big myth. Most people say, I can't meditate. Why? Because my mind's too busy. They believe that to meditate, you must quiet your mind. That's a myth. It's impossible to quiet your mind. You cannot quiet the mind. Here's what meditation is all about. It's about learning to be aware when you are lost in thought. So if you sit for 30 minutes every morning, As soon as you wake up in the morning, you empty your bladder usually. And if you make a practice of just sitting and just using a mantra, a tool like peace, you could use. Peace, be still. And so you're just silently saying, peace, be still. And you relax your body. And then thoughts come in. And you're aware you're lost in thought. You take a deep breath. You come back to peace, be still. Peace, be still. And you're just silently saying it. So really, it took me – I've been a teacher for 17 years. It took me seven years of teaching. I've taught almost a 1,000 people to meditate. Within that first seven years, one day I came out of my meditation practice and I thought, oh, why didn't someone tell me? The whole point of this practice is just (laughs) to be aware when I'm lost at thought. I thought I was supposed to not think. And so once I began to teach students that – This is the only purpose of meditation is be aware when you're lost in thought because if you can master where your mind is, your attention, and let's face it, most people are multitasking and it's the one thing we do, we get worse at the more we do it, right? The more we practice multitasking, we get worse at it because the mind needs focus. It needs one-pointed attention. We need to be present at what we're doing. But because we're such a busy Western you know, society, it's just constant, that we have to build the muscle. It's like going to the gym. So every day we sit, we build the muscle of mastering where our attention is. Your attention is your most valuable asset because whatever you place it on is fertilizing it. You place it on your ex-wife, you're fertilizing that. You place it on your lack of finances, you're fertilizing that. So we've got to be masters at where are we placing it? And we want to place it on, you know, gratitude, appreciation. And then we start to have more abundance and more things to be grateful for. So the meditation is good for physiology, for your health and well-being, of course. So that's one aspect of it. It helps you master where your attention is. So that you can be more present with the people you love and the activities you're doing and you're not always losing your keys or you know where's my sunglasses and they're on your face you know like <laughs> you're present right you're enjoying your life you're present and so the third aspect of what meditation does is it connects you to the spiritual domain we live in a 3d world everything has height width and depth you know we think this world is the real reality We haven't learned to close our eyes to the outer world and make our inner world real. So when, you know, there's a saying, if you don't go within, you'll go without. So when you meditate, you're going within. And to go within means I'm connecting to that which created me. You know, call it God, spirit, source, universe. You know, there's so many names for it. The Holy Spirit, Christ. You connect with a power greater than yourself that lives and moves and breathes for you. Because let's face it, we're going to go to bed tonight. Usually we go through our day. Something's breathing for us. It's digesting our food. It's doing everything. It's an infinite intelligence. So spiritually speaking, when you calm your nervous system and you're more present, you're more spiritual. Because now you see the birds flying by. And you think, well, they're not worried about where they're going to eat. Why am I worrying? You know, you start connecting and you feel a sense of oneness and connection. And that's your spiritual connection.
0: Nice. Well, we've talked uh, many times on this show about um, the imprinting we get as children. I mean, I mean, day zero, I mean, the day you're, we're all born... We don't ha- we don't have an active functional ego. We don't even have words to make sentences out of, but yet we can uh, we we can take on the belief systems of our our family of origin. So, can you tell me about how a core false belief can be formed and how it becomes part of a The operating system of our psyche
1: sure from what I understand so in those first seven years is our developmental years right so we're like you said we're being conditioned by mom and dad by by our you know family of origin by the you know extended family by television shows by every It's we're molding and being conditioned and so events happen when we're young in those first seven years that are emotionally triggering because when we're young the reason why we say inner child because when we're a child we don't have the rational defenses or structure of the brain of an adult right we're not it's not developed till we're about 25 the brain so we're very emotional and we personalize everything and so i'm working with a client right now a young man and he actually i was just taking him through hypnotherapy today and he remembered an event where when his grandpa died, he was six years old and grandpa passed away. And when he was told his parents were very emotionless, they were very disconnected from their feelings. And in that moment I said, so I want you to identify that you made it mean something. Cause that's what we do as children. We personalize it. And so he made it mean his feelings didn't matter. And because they didn't say, how are you feeling? Can we support you? You know, we're here for you. I know you're sad. You're grieving. You've never lost anybody. who's very close to his grandpa. And um, so he was devastated. And then that false belief became like an operating system, like a computer. So think of it like we all have an operating system that we default to. And a lot of times people don't understand, well, why I read this book, I went to this seminar, I did this retreat, I'm, why is it not sticking? Well, that's software. And you can't put new software on old hardware that's incompatible. So it's really, you've got to look at what happened to me in my first seven years that, and sometimes it's so outside people's conscious awareness because it was such a simple event. As an adult you would you would dismiss it as it wasn't important, but it was important to the child and so I had another client she her parents forced her in a pond in a lake when she was five years old, and she's screaming and fighting and again, my feelings don't matter because if they mattered, they would have listened to her and not forced her in the lake. Well, that operating system goes dormant you don't remember those events because they were You know, he he remembered the event of his grandpa, but he didn't know he created a false belief that his feelings didn't matter. But why is he here? Because he's in a marriage where it's all about her and he caretakes her and his feelings don't matter. So it distorted his view of himself and his ability to have healthy relationships. He puts other people's feelings above his own because his feelings were dismissed. And he doesn't want anyone to have the experience of their feelings being dismissed. So he goes out of his way and he makes their feelings more important. And then he's left empty, right? Hollow and feeling, well, my feelings don't matter. And so the same thing with the female client with the, you know, she, her complaint was my kids don't listen to me. My husband doesn't listen to me. Well, nobody listened to her because she didn't advocate for herself. She, you know, she never spoke up, and so they just did what they wanted to do because she just seemed to go with the flow, but she was passive-aggressive. She was resentful. She was angry, and so that's what ends up happening. The very thing that we try to adopt the opposite, right? We Like the client here now, he, you know, makes everybody's feelings more important. She did that too, you know, everybody, but nobody cared about her feelings, and so... You know, at some point you start to get resentful and angry and your relationships fall apart and you overwork and you're trying to be perfect and nothing is working. All because you're running an old operating system. you got to get to the root of what happened to me that I internalized something. For me, it was I'm a bad girl. Um, I was sexualized at a young age and I began to act out. Children that are sexualized behave, you know, sexually. So I began to act out and I would get caught and I would be shamed. Bad girl, like, you don't do that. Like, you know, stop that. And so I began to get this message, you know, I'm bad. I'm, you know, something's wrong with me. Why do I behave like this? And so anytime anybody would be mad at me, of course, I would implode and I would take it on all myself. I'm bad. I did something wrong. You know, I'm a bad girl. So my little girl, if you were in my head throughout the day, I'm telling her she's a good girl a lot, even at 58 years old. I can't hear it enough. So these false beliefs are what really rob us of our happiness. They strip us of our innocence. They take away all of our joy and our belief in ourselves. They make us doubt ourselves. Soon as you can get to the root of it, you can totally shift it by All a belief is is a practice thought. So you just begin, like, tonight the client got, my feelings matter. You know, I I matter. And he needs to begin to say that to himself all the time. And if he does, his behavior will begin to show that his feelings matter. Why? Because he'll step up, he'll speak up for himself, and he won't allow people to walk all over him and be a doormat.
0: I like that. So you you're sharing examples of of people who have gotten into uh, relationships and they have this um narrative playing out that was imprinted in them as a child. My 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 thoughts don't matter. Um when when <laughs> when we go to uh court or go through courtship to find, uh, our partner that, you know, uh, husband, wife, whatever. Do you think that there's a subconscious mechanism that chooses people? Because you shared the, the story about the guy that, uh, his thoughts didn't matter. And then, uh, shared that his wife, was, it was all about her, do you, uh, you, you know what I'm getting yeah. at? I mean, it, it's like, I do. they're, they're, tr- so they're trying believed to heal themselves.
1: feelings didn't matter. That's, it was right. not his thought, his feelings.
0: Okay, feelings. So, he
1: attracted, yeah, so this is called imago. Imago means image. We attract to us the image of a caretaker mm-hmm. that we had, because we're still trying to work it out, right? We're still trying to, recreate our childhood to get our needs met to get what we didn't have from our childhood with someone else when we're unconscious so what happens is you attract someone into your relationship and using him as an example he's in a relationship so he got a message my feelings don't matter other people's feelings are more important than mine so to be a good person I must give up myself and and you know make it about the other person, and then, then I'll feel good about myself. Then I'll get my needs met, right? So, he and he. This is all in the subconscious mind. He's not consciously aware he's doing that. He's abandoning his inner child, his feelings, just like his parents abandoned his feelings when he was six years old when his granddad died. So now he's in a marriage, and now he's faced with this reality. That her feelings, he's established this relationship. Her feelings are more important than his. And she believes it. And he's supposed to make up for her what she lacked as a child with her dad. Her dad didn't give her the love and recognition. So now she's putting it on her husband that he must give it to her. But that's not his responsibility, right? He's helpless over her, and that's her work to do. So then when you do your own personal work, two whole people come together and you don't have to have this dysfunctional codependent relationship. But you'll always attract water, six, sits on level, birds of a feather, flock together. You know, we have these sayings because they're real. And we're attracting people in the mirror of relationship to mirror to us what we believe about ourselves so we can heal it. So like I'll give a personal example. My husband is a, a recovering caretaker he's a physician he cares for people he's a you know he and as a little boy he, was, uh, he grew up up in fort collins in uh, colorado his mom was a single mom his dad left before he even knew him he couldn't see well he created a story that i don't have a daddy because i'm unwanted and i'm defected i'm a defective child because i'm can't see good as a baby I had to wear the thick glasses with the little nose thing. And so in relationship with me, now I already told you I'm bad girl or whatever. Anybody upset with me, then I implode. So I attract a man, my husband, who also does a similar thing. If I'm upset about something, he immediately thinks he did something wrong. Right. Or vice versa. So we're constantly because we're conscious of it, right? We can communicate in a conscious way together and that's what it takes each individual taking 100 percent responsibility for themselves their feelings and not looking to their partner for the partner to make up for what they lacked as a ch- from childhood you know it's my responsibility for my happiness
0: right so what what we're talking about really is shadow work um yeah When, uh, how would you explain the the qualities we're judging in another person and how it's a reflection perhaps of uh, our own imprinting?
1: Yeah, so what happens in shadow, shadow is a term that Carl Jung coined and it just means it's the parts of our psyche that we deny, repress and disown. And Robert Bly, the poet, he has a book, a little book on the human shadow. And he said, you know, it's like we're getting conditioned from childhood and we've got this bag and we're throwing all these unacceptable qualities into the bag. And then we get to midlife and have the crisis and we got this full bag, right, of we're trying to hide all these parts, but they keep creeping out. And, of course, we see them in others. That's how we spot it, you got it. The 12 Steps has that famous, you know, saying, if you spot it, you got it we see in others a mirror reflection of what we need to heal within ourselves so it but works both ways light and dark so if i admire someone and i respect them i ask myself what are the qualities i love about them and those are the qualities either i love in myself or i want to develop more in myself right we we paint people with our with You know our shadows like we oh they're so amazing they're so smart they're so brilliant we're seeing in them something that's yearning to be birthed or be strengthened within ourselves and the opposite is what gets our attention the most though so it's the people who push our buttons and emotionally trigger us Ken Wilbur the integral psychologist says to know your shadows you, you need to know when you're affected or you're informed Now, affected means my buttons are pushed, I'm triggered, I'm emotionally charged by something that's happening within you. And so somebody, you know, does something and it triggers you, right? It pushes your button. You want to always ask yourself the first question, what kind of person would do that? Um, And you'll get some quality, right? Like uh, rude or disconnected or unconscious or mean, And then you want to ask yourself have I ever been that in the past and if you're being honest with yourself you're human of course you've been that we can be everything sometimes so you ask yourself that and then you say or a lot of people care what people think about them less so they might say what do I think that person is judging me what are they judging about me right because you're either judging them or you think they're judging you and if they're judging you, you would say, well, what do I think they're judging me? Oh, they think I'm selfish because I'm doing what I want to do. Okay, sometimes you've got to be okay that you're going to show up selfish when you put yourself first and you take care of yourself. If you do it consistently, of course that's selfish. But if you're not doing it consistently, it's self-responsible. It's healthy. So the first step in shadow work is really identifying identifying what is the quality that's got you upset then the second step is to own it I've been that way in the past present possible future or I'm that way to myself I remember early in my career I was talking to a lady and she was telling me that you know essentially she was in a relationship being verbally abused and so after I listened to her I wasn't very eloquent back then and I said oh so you're an abuser she's like did you not hear anything I've said I said, "Yes, yes, I heard you." <laughs> I said, "I said you said your spouse is verbally abusing you, right?" And she said, "Yes." And I said, "Okay. Well, he's mirroring to you what you're doing to yourself." You just told me how you tell yourself you're an idiot, that you're, you know, that you deserve it, that you That's abusive. And then the light bulb went off. She realized no woman of value would be with a man who is devaluing her. So right. it all existed within her, right? And so she began to do the work to love and value herself and she left that marriage because she no longer was abusing herself, right? right? So then the third step is is really embracing it is I can be an abuser sometimes. I can be abusive. and and owning and embracing it is putting your arms around the part of yourself that you're judging, you know, whether it's your abusive self, your selfish self, your mean self, your disconnected self, your manipulative self. I mean, all the things we judge, your irresponsible self. It's saying, you know, there. I have a reason to act that way sometimes. And I love and accept myself even when I don't show up in my highest. And then, of course, love is the great redeemer because as soon as we love and accept ourselves it quiets down if you keep judging the judger right if you keep getting angry at the part of you that's angry if you keep you know it's it's a cosmic joke you're not going to get anywhere but as soon as you offer love and compassion to yourself and then you can afford it to others because you're giving it to yourself The shadow work for me was so life-changing because You know, Les, growing up in a very volatile, angry household, I had a lot of anger. And when I would have an outburst, you know, I I would implode. I would hate myself. I would just, oh, what's wrong with me? I kept trying to put pink paint, you know, on all my childhood problems and pretend if I'm successful, then nobody will know I was white trash or I was poor. But what happened, I realized, is no amount of money or no amount of success was going to fill that gaping hole. I had to go into that hole within myself and start to love and accept the angry part of myself, that I was still angry that that I had a gun put in my head when I was eight years old by my mother. I was angry that I was ridiculed and bullied by children in school my whole life, you know, because I wore the same clothes every day and I had crooked teeth. And my family was known as the crazy family that the police got called, you know, in my small town. I was angry about all of that. And until I loved and accepted the little girl that was so angry, she quieted down. Once I gave her acceptance, I don't have to express anger anymore.
0: Nice. Well, you know. I I know in your book... Uh, A big part of it is using your imagination to manifest the life of your dreams. Tell me about the process you teach that could help our listeners, how they could use to manifest their dreams.
1: Yeah. This is one of my favorite subjects. So there is a formula so if any listeners, you know, if you're driving don't do this, but if you have a pen and paper, definitely write this down. So the first is <laughs> The first is getting coherent. Think about when you're in stress, you're not coherent and coherency means that your cognition, your thinking is clear. When your heart is your heart sends more signals to your brain than your brain does to your heart. So we have to be coherent. You ask me why meditation? Because meditation helps us become coherent. And HeartMath came out with these intelligent energy management techniques. They're very simple. You can Google HeartMath and you can find them. The one that I teach is called Quick Coherence. And it's just slow, deep breathing into your heart, about four or five seconds on the in-breath and out-breath. And then bringing to mind anything that fills your heart up with gratitude and appreciation. This creates a coherency between your heart and your brain. Now you can think clear, you can have creative ideas, right? You can have, um, you know, Einstein said you can't solve a problem at the level it was created. So you rise above problems and you have more creative solutions to the problems in your life when you're coherent. So the first step is to create coherency. Then the second step is to have a clear intent. So as a little girl, the child within us is very imaginary. When we're children, our, imaginary, our our imagination is very rich. And Einstein also said imagination is more important than knowledge, coming from one of the br- brightest minds of our time. He said imagination is more important than knowledge because it will encircle the globe where knowledge can't take you that far. Imagination can take you as far as you want to go. So the second step is having a clear intent, right, using your imagination. What is your intention that you want to create? Is it more abundance? Is it greater health and well-being? Is it, you know, your, your relationships? Is it your spirituality? Whatever area of your life that you're wanting to manifest, you use your imagination to begin to see it, feel it, taste it, touch it, hear it, engage all your senses. So as soon as you have a coherent mind, now you have a clear intention about what you want, and you bring in the elevated emotion, is the third, of how it would feel to be living what you're imagining. So your brain and body now is living ahead of time. It doesn't know the difference between you're just telling yourself, you know, imagining this is happening, or it's actually happening. Researchers put EEGs on people many years ago, said, look at the sunset, showed them a picture of the sunset. The other ones, they said, close your eyes, imagine a sunset, same receptor sites in the brain fired. That's when we knew the brain does not know the difference between an image and actual experience, reality. So we, when you know that, you can begin to use your imagination for what you want to create. So I've manifested everything in my life from the time. I was young. My imagination was very very vivid and I disassociated from all the trauma and I lived in my imaginary world. I had imaginary friends. I played with my Barbie dolls. I traveled. I lived a beautiful life in my imagination. I lived that life that I imagined when I was a child.
0: Very nice. Well Mm -hmm. now... If there was one thing you would recommend to our listeners to start today or tomorrow to heal, what would that be?
1: Oh, gosh, meditate. I mean, if you can't call, you are a human being. Every person listening to this, you are not a human doing. You are not a human thinking and you're not a human feeling. You are a human doing, I mean, being. And when you were born, you could be you weren't worrying about bills and thinking about things you and if you want to achieve any success and happiness and peace and joy in this lifetime you must learn to just be to sit to be still to be quiet and and if you can do that that's when you tap into creative ideas That's when synchronicities happen. This word synchronicity also comes from Carl Jung. He coined and created this term which means meaningful coincidences. Things start to happen. You're thinking of something and they call you someone. You begin to imagine something and you meet somebody and they offer you a position. You're worried about money, but all of a sudden you open your mailbox and there's a check you weren't expecting to get. Things begin to synchronize in your life. If you can learn to have faith and trust that it's okay for you to sit and just be, be peace, be still, wake up every morning and just sit before you look out into the world and remember that you're this person from America or wherever you're from and you're a man or you're a woman and your job and all the roles you play. Before you identify with all of that, if you can identify with just being a being, right, not a doing, not a thinking, and not a feeling, then your thinking, your doing, and your feeling are going to be much more (laughs) greater because you sourced it from being. It's kind of like a foundation.
0: Very nice. Well, an hour can go by pretty fast. It's time to put attention on you. Tell us where we can get your book and your platform. And, I mean... Do you work online with people? Is it all in person? Give us the whole rundown so the audience knows how to engage your platform.
1: Yeah. So our emotional healing retreats, we do group retreats around the country every year. We have one coming up this year, only one this year, a group. It's a 20th anniversary here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. You can find that on emotionalhealingretreats.com. Another thing we're excited about doing this year, my husband, who's also my business partner, um, who's a physician, we are creating master classes for free. So if you go to the website and you sign up for a master class or you sign up for, you know, we're getting ready to do an emotional mastery jumpstart. So we'll offer for three days, we'll come on live on Zoom and we'll share and just teach for free. And so this is what we're going to be doing this entire year of 2024. We're really all about service this year and giving back. And so we're going to offer those. We also do private intensives. That's a one-on-one intensive. They book out four to six months in advance. We bring people here. We have a healing center on our land in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And we do a deep dive with people. This is a very intensive, um, week-long like emotional rehab. It's for somebody who says, you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired and I need help and I'm ready to get down to the nitty gritty of what is, you know, preventing me from having the life that I say I want. So that's a very deep dive intensive. It's costly. It requires a um, interview process, but it's, you know, it's very powerful. You can read the testimonials at the website. My book Wise Little One is on Amazon, and um, to rave reviews, I'm very, um, you know, grateful, and I've been on Amazon's um, bestseller list for inner child healing, and and yeah, so it's doing great, so definitely pick up a copy of the book and join us in one of our free, the next one starts on February 21st, so it'll be in a few weeks, and we'll be offering that, and yeah I'd just love to hear from anybody who's heard the heard the show and we'd love to support you
0: well very nice i've I have very much enjoyed this episode i want to thank you for being our guest tonight
1: Thank you Les. I feel very honored. Thank you so much for having me.
0: We've been the topic tonight has been wise little one which is the the title of our guest's latest book Jana Wilson um what a what a <laughs> it was pretty comprehensive we we went we went around and and looked at a lot of aspects of our human psyche of of how we take on imprinting and and Things we can do to to unravel ourselves, so to speak. And here we are at the end of the show, and here you are as a listener. I want to thank you for showing up for yourself. It's it's when we decide that we want to invest in ourselves, and and tonight you've invested in yourself with by showing up tonight. Well, we're out of time. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living broadcast. If you're looking for spiritual resources, there's literally hundreds of podcasts just like this one, free online. You can find them at newhumanliving.com. If you sign up for the newsletter, I write a weekly blog that helps you contemplate the nature of nature, contemplate the nature of your own human genome, contemplate your own human potential. How powerful is that? I can say it's powerful because you are powerful. I want to thank you for joining us in tonight's broadcast. I appreciate you, the listener. Until next time, thanks for listening.